Welcome to the Renaissance Podcast. Every week, we strive to present the truth and love of Jesus to the heart of our community through music, art, and public speaking. Today, we continue with our study through 1 Corinthians, and we hope you are encouraged by this message. Let's get started. Welcome to Renaissance. My name is Jeff. I am one of the leaders here at the church, and um, it is my pleasure to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're going to continue our study in the book of 1 Corinthians. We've been studying the book of 1 Corinthians for a few months now. Back in February, I think we started this book. And what we like to do is just go through line by line, try to understand as best we can um, the heart of the book, the, the person who wrote it, the people they're writing to, and, and probably, I say probably loosely here, but most importantly, to understand the heart of God who would have inspired the, the people to write the book. Like, so Paul would have been inspired by the Holy Spirit, God himself, to write to the church in Corinth to instruct them and correct them in some of their things of Christian living. And, and for me, as a pastor, one of the greatest things that I desire is to always be humble enough to be corrected by the Lord. And um, I'm preaching my sermon in reverse order at this point, um, but that's kind of the spoiler. This is kind of where I want to go with a lot of things. There's, there's been many times in my life, maybe yours too, where I've just been mistaken about some things. And um, praise the Lord, someone has come and corrected me on some things. When's the last time someone's corrected you? Has it been recent? Did you take it well? <laughs> and, you know, was it, if you're married, was it your spouse this morning? You're wearing that shirt? Really? That thing? So, <laughs> anyways, um, so I don't want to get ahead of myself. Um, so, while you're turning to 1 Corinthians 14, uh, let me just give a little context to where we've been so far. Chapters 12, 13, and 14 in the letter of 1 Corinthians is a particular issue that Paul is addressing in the Corinthian church. So they have um, come to, to knowledge and faith in Jesus Christ, become Christians. A little church has been born in this pagan city called Corinth. And as they're gathering together, God has honored their meeting together by giving them spiritual gifts. And Paul started talking about this in chapter 12. And these spiritual gifts include things like the gifts of healing, miracles, uh, the gifts of knowledge, prophecy, speaking in tongues, and all kinds of um, awesome things. And the church... Unfortunately, I think in their immaturity and I would argue their arrogance, they began to misuse some of these gifts that God had given them. They began to use them to think of themselves higher than others. Some people had really awesome gifts like gifts of healing and miracles and other people just had gifts of administration or hospitality. And so the people with the really cool gifts like healings would look down upon the others. But you have to agree with me, all of the gifts are good because they all come from God, yes? But unfortunately, they were using this um, as a way to divide the church. And it was causing disunity, which is not at all the heart of God. The, the heart of God through his spirit would that he would unite the church together, not drive them apart. In chapter 13, we talked about love being the, the principal trademark of the believer's life. All things should work out of the Christian character of charity, compassion, and love for other people. And if we're doing anything that's motivated by something other than that love, then we run the risk of showing the world a Jesus that isn't real. 
I have to admit, the world doesn't need another fake Jesus. There's enough fake Jesuses. Jesus? I don't know. <laughs> I don't, there's enough of them out there. There's one true Jesus. It's the Jesus of the Bible. It's the Jesus that we laud and worship here every week. And we never want to present a false Jesus to the world around us. To be honest, that Jesus can't help them. That Jesus that somehow man-made, fashioned by our own imagination, um, our own opinions, if you will, that Jesus is impotent to help the world. We need the true Jesus. So Paul writes to the church in Corinth, talking to them about some of the abuses that have been taking place. And in care and compassion, he corrects them. And as we finish chapter 14 today, we're finally getting to the nuts and bolts of what Paul's been driving towards for the past three verses. It is in these last three chapters, it is in these last few verses that we actually see Paul tell them, stop doing this, start doing this, stop doing this, start doing this. This is where the, the rubber meets the road, if you will. This is the part where they have to pay attention. And um, I would argue that we should probably as well. So what I want to do is read the whole text in its entirety, 14, 26 through 40. And um, you can follow along on the screen here. We'll put the words up there. So Paul writes to them. He says, what then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. But he says, let all things be done for the building up or the edification, the encouragement of the church. That's been Paul's thrust these last few weeks. He goes, I want the church to be encouraged when it meets together. And so he says this, if anyone speak in tongues, let there be only two or at most three. And in each turn and each, each in turn, and then let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret the tongues, then let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God only, he says. Verse 29, let two or three prophets speak. Again, these are the manifestation gifts of tongues and prophecy. Let two or three prophets speak and let each one, let the others rather weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, then let the first one be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. And we'll come back to that. And all of this is driven by this one fact, verse 33. For God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. Some of your translations might say order. God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace or order. And as in all the churches of the saints, the women, he says, should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but they should be in submission, as the law also says. And if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Verse 36, Or was it from you that the word of God came? Are you the only ones that it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, then he should acknowledge the things that I am writing to you, that they are a command of the Lord Jesus, he says. If anyone does not recognize this, then he is not recognized at all. So, my brothers... And here's his conclusion. Earnestly desire to prophesy and don't forbid speaking in tongues. But all of these things should be done decently and in order. Um, 
maybe most of you want me to just start with verse 34 and 35 um, when it talks about women being silent in the church, right? Let's just start there. Screw all this tongues and prophecy garbage. <laughs> what do you think about that particular thing? Um, if I could be honest with you, I'm going to skip that today, and I'm not, like, afraid of it. So this isn't like a drop back and punt thing. But to me, it feels very parenthetical, meaning this. It feels like it's inserted in the middle of a, a conversation that Paul's having with the church in Corinth about tongues and prophecy. He's bringing correctives there. And in the middle of that, somehow, and there's big debate on how it got in there, somehow this issue of women speaking in church rises. He talks about it for a verse or two and then jumps back into the prophecy in tongues. So what I'd like to do is spend time talking about that next week. So... May I remind you, there is no six o'clock gathering next week. <laughs> so if you at all want to hear what we're going to say about that next week, you're going to have to squeeze in in one of the morning services. Is that okay? So um, just for the record, I'm for women speaking in church. You can sleep better tonight. Um, I, I'm for women pastors. I'm for women leaders. I'm for all this stuff. You know what I mean? It's ridiculous to think otherwise. Um, anyways, moving on. So um, I want to pray for us. Um, and then ask God to help us at least try to disseminate some information so we can learn from him tonight, okay? God, thank you for our time together. Thank you for everything that you do for us. Thank you that I get to be a part of a church that makes much to do about Jesus. God, I thank you that we, um, that in Jesus, we can truly see the representation of who you are and your love for us. We thank you that we don't have to look elsewhere to see value in our own lives. We can just look to what Jesus has done for us by giving his life on a cross uh, for the, for the re remission of or the removal of our sinful state. That God, you sent your son for us on that behalf. And so we can see how your heart beats for us and how your affections are towards us. And we thank you for that. And so we thank you that Jesus came for us. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you've come also to speak to us in your church, that you've come to empower, empower us in your church. You've come to open our eyes and our ears, and you are desperate to lead us into all truth. That's what Jesus said you would do, that when the Spirit comes, that he will lead you into truth. He will testify of me, Jesus, and it'll be a help to you. So Holy Spirit, we, we ask for your help tonight. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A couple times this last year, uh, in January and in March, I got invited to go to California, uh, to Los Angeles, to be a part of a, um, a meeting for our denomination. For those of you that don't know, Four Square, or Renaissance is a four-square church, and there were some meetings happening in California, and they invited me to be a part. And if you don't know this, to be in Southern California in January is much better than being in Illinois in January, right? So the, the, the easy answer was yes, I would love to come and be a part of these meetings. So I flew out in January, had a great time, um, and then had to go back in March. And when I went back in March, because I'd been there before, um, I miscalculated some things. So I had to fly out of Midway in Chicago, and I knew about what time I had to leave the house. I was cutting it a little close, but I was convinced I had enough time to get there. I didn't eat anything. I was just going to pick something up in the terminal when I got there. I knew where to park. I didn't even put anything in my GPS. I'd been there just a few months before, right? Well, unbeknownst to me, as I was leaving my house, driving to Chicago, a storm blew in. 
and I had to drive for three hours in solid rain, which slowed everyone down. And now I'm losing margin in my timeline. And I get to the airport and I pull into the wrong parking garage because I'm a moron. I should be honest, because I have no, I should have paid more attention. I don't know what happened. I pulled into the wrong parking garage and I had to get out of the parking garage. But the lady at the gate was trying to charge me like $26 for being in that parking garage. And I, I pleaded with her. I said, you don't understand. I've only been in here one minute. I just drove around in a circle. I need to park over there. And she's kind enough and let me do that. I'm running into the, the airport, taking my shoes off as I hit the TSA place, right? As I hear them literally boarding my plane. And I'm scrambling to get through all of this. So there goes, I, there's no time for lunch. There's no time for anything. I just barely get on a plane. And I mean barely, I'm the last person to get on the plane and they shut the door. It's probably obvious to say mistakes have been made that day, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, I made some mistakes, some miscalculations. I think we all make mistakes. And some of them are bigger than others. That was probably a big mistake for me. Like how embarrassing would that have been if I would have missed my flight and had to reconnect some other way? Missed the meetings, who knows what would have happened. But other mistakes, not so much. I mean, how many times have you made this mistake? Thinking there's enough milk for cereal in the morning the next day and that you don't need to go to the store because you really don't want to go to the store only to wake up the next day and there's no milk in the refrigerator, you know what I'm talking about? And you have to say, oh my gosh, I can't believe that happened. I mean, there are mistakes that we make all the time. And I bring all of this up to just point to this question. What do you do when you're confronted with the mistakes that you make? What do you do when you're confronted with errors or when you've been wrong? I was reading a, a periodical online this past week, Psychology Today. Many of you are subscribers, I'm sure, <laughs> right? But I'm reading this article talking about the ego of mankind. And oftentimes the ego of people is so fragile that they're unwilling to accept that they're wrong sometimes. And maybe you know people like this. And if you can't think of someone like this, maybe it's you. <laughs> when someone confronts you with evidence that you've been wrong and you somehow justify and you somehow backpedal and sometimes it's like you, ne you, know, you know what I'm saying? This article was talking about the fragility of a person's ego and their unwilling. It doesn't show strength in a person. It shows how weak they truly are. So I'm saying all of that to get to this ultimate reality. As Paul finishes his thought about correction, about the spiritual gifts in the church, he asks them this question in verse 26. What then, brothers? It could be read this way. What then, brothers and sisters? He's like, okay, of everything that I've just informed you about and all of the errors of your thinking and actions, now that you've been um, corrected, now that you've been shown the right way, what then are you going to do with it? The question I ask myself all the time, when I'm corrected, when I'm shown the wrongness of my thinking, what am I going to do with that thinking as well? So this morning, as I was coming up here to speak, I was in a state of prayer just sort of behind the scenes. You ever do that, like you're just in prayer, and even though you're having a conversation with someone, some, someone in the back of your mind, you're still just sort of praying and thinking about the things that you're going to say in a few minutes? This, the whole time I'm walking up here, I'm just asking God to, to humble me, to, to make me low and meek that I might learn from him, to strip the arrogance or boastfulness away from me because I've learned that those things can hinder the correction that comes to me. And so I've prayed that over you, but I want you to, to lay into this thought. 
What do you do when you've been corrected in your thinking? Let me ask you this. What do you do when you've been corrected on or adjusted in your thinking of who God is? Does your view of God ever change? Lovingly, the answer should be yes. We would call this theology. Theology just means knowledge of God. Our knowledge and understanding of God should always be changing. Okay? Now hear me. God himself doesn't change. The writer of Hebrews says that when he says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, so God himself is immutable. That's the, the attribute of God. He's unchanging. But our understanding of him changes. Yes? It must. Oh, please, it must Please don't tell me that how you understood God when you were 12, year old, 12 years old is the same way that you understand God now. Please say that's not the, the, the truth. Please tell me you've, you've modified in your thinking of him. It has to. As you grow in understanding of him, he is going to reveal new things to you all the time. And then the question then remains, what do you do with that information? Paul is coming to the church in Corinth who have been saved out of this pagan culture. They don't know God. All of a sudden they know who God is and then God shows up in this supernatural, miraculous way and they're acting in error. Paul corrects them in it. And, and I ask this question, I wonder how the, the church in Corinth responded to what Paul said to them. Did they change? I, I, don't, I don't know the answer to the question. I don't know. And to me right now, I don't, I don't care my question is, how, how do you change when you're an error on how you think about how worship services are supposed to go? When you're an error about how you think God responds to his people, or you're an error about, or you're mistaken about some things, or you don't have the full information. Is this making sense to you? And so I just want us to consider that. And Paul, he continues to write to the church, and he says, um, when you come together, and here's the beginning of some of his correctives here. He says, when you come together, verse 26, each person could carry with them a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, maybe an interpretation. There's all kinds of different uh, moving parts in a church service, if you will. I don't think this is an exhaustive list of what a church service is supposed to look like. I think this is a picture of what the church service in Corinth looked like. He says, in all of these things that are happening, just make sure that all things are done for the building up of the church, that all things are edifying one another. And then he brings some limitations to the spiritual gifts of tongues and prophecy because this appeared to be the biggest issue that was having that the church was having in Corinth. In verse 27, he says, "Is if anyone speaks in a tongue, then let there only be two or at the most three people speaking in tongues at any gathering, he would say. Make sure they go one at a time. Okay, we don't want everyone talking at the same time. I think that's a smart idea. <laughs> And then he says, and let someone interpret what is being said. So he restricts them in three ways. There's only two or three people who can do this. The second thing is you have to go in order or in turn, and someone has to be there to interpret. Now, we don't know exactly what was happening in the church in Corinth, but we get some impression by the language that Paul is using to correct them. It appears that they, when they gathered together, everyone just was ecstatic and manic and was just kind of crazy talk. And he addressed this last week when he said, listen, if someone was to come in from the outside, maybe a friend's visiting from school, I don't know, and you invite them to church and, and, and everyone is speaking in tongues and everyone is speaking in prophecy and all this is happening at the same time, won't that person think you're insane? 
The answer is yes. They would think you're insane. <laughs> they would think all of us are insane. And so what Paul is trying to do is correct them and how this service is supposed to go together for the intelligibility and the edification of the church. So he limits them. And look what he says here in verse 28. I want to be careful here. He said, if there's no one there in the church to interpret, then let that person keep silent. Don't speak in tongues, he says. Instead, speak to yourself and then to God. I'm going to keep going. Um, the issue of tongues here, now let's look what he says to the people who have the prophetic gift or the other speaking gift in the church. Verse 29, he says, if someone's going to have the gift of prophecy, then let's let two or three prophets speak. Sounds eerily similar to what he just said about the people who speak in tongues. Yes, two or three. Let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. That's the second thing. He says, let's go one at a time. If someone's speaking, then let the other guy go first. And look back up in verse 29. He says, let the other people weigh what is said. If someone's going to speak a prophecy in the church, then the church is somehow responsible for that prophecy to discern whether or not it's in fact true. These are almost the exact same criteria that he gave to the people who speak in tongues. Only two or three go in order one at a time and make sure there's someone there to discern or interpret what was said. Same thing for the prophets. All of this is to encourage the use of gifts, yet to limit their confusion, if you will. Now, the thing that strikes me most, and I'm going to say this and move on because I got myself in trouble this morning. Um, verse 28 and verse 32. Which one? Let's do verse 32 first. He says, The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. So I want you to picture the person who's been gifted by the Spirit of God, a manifestation gift of prophecy, which just simply means this. God has somehow, through his Holy Spirit, given them an understanding of something, and that person says that to everyone else. But he's saying that the person who has the gift of prophecy submits himself to his own spirit, meaning this. <laughs> There's a level of self-control that's available to us, even in the operation of spiritual gifts. So for those of us who were sort of raised in this understanding, okay, myself included, that, that it's um, when the Holy Spirit comes on a person, they somehow lose control of themselves in this ecstatic or manic manner, and they can't not speak in tongues in church service. They can't not prophesy in the middle of a church service. And Paul would argue that's in fact not true. <clears throat> now, as I was thinking this through out loud with some friends this week, somebody disagreed with me on this. And I'm okay with that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Are you okay when people disagree with you? Oh, please be okay with it. I, here's what I've come to understand. I am learning that God does honor the person that the gift he has given. Think of the tension that exists here. The Spirit of God, God himself, desirous to manifest himself in the church service with other believers, but he limits that use to the person on whether or not they're going to do it or not. He says only two or three. What if you're the fourth guy who's getting ready to speak and the Spirit comes upon you, then what do you do? Rhetorical question, you hold it. 
That's what he says. Some think that's impossible to do. I disagree. So I'm going to move on from there because, again, I think I got myself in trouble this morning. And um, I'm, a, I'm smart enough to know when I should shut up, right? So let's move on. So and he, he concludes his thinking here in verse 33, which I think might be real helpful for us to consider. The reason that we do this, okay, the reason we limit to two or three, the reason we limit to one at a time, the reason we limit to interpretation and discernment only is for this. For God is, a, is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. Or God is a, not a God of confusion, but a God of order, he says. Now, I want you to hear this. Paul does not rebuke the Corinthian church for doing things in their church service that, he's just, that he just doesn't like. I don't know why I did this right then. <laughs> it's, it's not just because I, I don't, it's not, I'm not a fan of those things or it's not my, my jam when churches do that. It's not that at all. His reasoning, his justification for how church services and worship gatherings should take place is driven by the character of God himself. You see, God, he says, is a God of order. Not a God of confusion. God is a God of peace, he says. And because of that, we, his followers, you know what I mean? But we should worship him and serve him in the capacity by which we know him, which is like who he is. So if he's a God of compassion, then when we worship, we should be compassionate people. Would you agree? I was praying this morning. I asked the people around the table with me. If God is a God of order and of peace, and we should worship him in order and in peace, what are some other attributes of God that we should carry into our church services? And someone said this, and it just, it literally knocked me, (laughs) it knocked the wind out of me. They said, well, God is so welcoming to me and all the things that I've done against him. It would, it, would, it would make sense that we as the church should be very welcoming to other people, even those who have offended us at times. And I went, oh. <laughs> I'm like, we might have struck gold, friend. This is, what, this is real helpful to us. Now, hear me when I say this. This is something I've said for many years. I've been a worship leader before I was a pastor for a decade or more. And I've always said this and known this to be true. You can only worship God to the extent by which you know him. If you do not know him, you cannot worship him. This is making sense. And so the more we begin to understand and know him, then the more we can experience our worship of him grow. This is maybe why the question is so heavy on us today. What do you do with those things about God that you've been mistaken about? What do you do when God comes in and corrects your thinking about himself? I mean, if, if we're honest with each other, we should, we should embrace those things so that our knowledge of him could grow, so that our worship and adoration of him should grow. Yes? Again, skipping verse 34 and 35 for next week. You're welcome. Back to 36. Paul then addresses what I think is an issue of arrogance in the church. 
They've had some issues with Paul. Historically, we think that they don't even believe that Paul should be an apostle. They don't think that he's a real spiritual person like them. And, and there's been this sort of tit for tat back and forth between him and the church. And there's been some arguing, if you will. And he's just coming at them and reminding them of who they are, almost putting them in their place. But hear me, I think he's motivated by love. But he says this to them in verse 36. He goes, oh yeah, was it, was it from you exactly? Was it from you that the word of God came in the first place? I mean, it's, I mean, the answer is no. He's reminding them that the reason you're believers and Christians is because God, through his son Jesus, revealed it to me. And if you know the story of Paul's conversion on that road to Damascus, that he met Jesus in the flesh, he was converted, and then Paul went and planted churches all around the region. And the reason there's Christians in Corinth is because Paul came there and told them that. And he's like, listen, before you all think too much of yourself, may I remind you how exactly you became a Christian anyways. Wasn't it from me? He's just trying to support his authority to bring correction to them. And then he says this that just blows your mind here. He says, are you the only ones that the gospel of Jesus has reached? Are you the only ones that God has come to save? Do you think so highly of yourself that you mistake the work of God on the earth? Here, here's the danger, I think, in our culture. I'm really trying to be good. <laughs> I'm really trying to be good. I think in our culture, particularly here, right, Western America, we've, we've kind of grown up in a generation or two now um, where we sort of exalt the individual more so than everyone else. Like we've chased after rugged individualism to the detriment of the society as a whole. This is the generation or two where everyone gets a trophy. doesn't matter how bad you've done, right? Everyone has done well. You're great. You're awesome. You're whatever. In fact, and I think some of that thinking has leaked into the church, and we have a gospel that's being presented to the world that makes much to do about people and individuals more so than it does about God, okay? And we've kind of already talked about that tonight. And the danger in that is we can become arrogant in thinking that God only cares about us, only wants to save us, is only dealing with us, and it causes us to be myopic in that regard, and we lose sight of what God is actually doing in other places. We become boastful. We become arrogant. And the danger in that, ultimately, is that we'll refuse to be corrected, that we'll refuse to be... Um, challenged about some of our thinking because we think we have it all figured out. So uh, many years ago, I was in Dallas at a big church conference. It's what I do for fun. I'm a strange guy, right? So I'm at this big church conference at this huge mega church in Dallas, and we're singing a worship song that all of you would know, a very familiar song. And it was great. The band was killing it, okay? And we're singing the song. We go into the first chorus, and when we come back into the second verse, all of a sudden, the person singing the song is now singing in a language that I do not understand. Now, this was not tongues. This was actually Spanish. <laughs> they were speaking in Spanish. They were singing in Spanish. And I went, how strange to like switch in the middle of that song until it hit me 
the, the Hispanic people in my row and the row behind me and the row behind them, they began to sing louder and louder and louder. And all of a sudden, <laughs> the great big like, God that served the uh, American Christian <laughs> just became even bigger as he serves and saves the Hispanic people on the earth. And all of a sudden, I, I was reminded that God did not just come to save Western America. He came to save all peoples. So check it. Then they go to the third verse, and the same person, maybe it was a different person, I don't remember. But they sang the next verse in Chinese, and then in Korean, and then in uh, some other thing. <laughs> all, all that to say this. God is so much bigger than you and me. And he's for so many more people than you and me. This, this, this can get hard for us. A friend of mine had a, um, a coaster that she used to keep her coffee mug on. And it said this, it said, Jesus loves you. I'm like, oh, but I'm his favorite. <laughs> And I'm like, oh, how kind of cute and pithy or whatever. But how dangerous. <laughs> I mean, do you see what I mean? See, if we, if we make it so focused about us and how God wants to do things for us, we lose sight of the fact that he also wants to do things for other people. If we're too self-focused, then we become less Jesus-focused. So I mentioned earlier that I've been wrong about many things in my life. I was wrong about having enough time to get to the airport, <laughs> but that pales in the comparison to how wrong I was about God when I was in my 20s. So I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I had no sort of understanding of who God was. And to me, God and or Jesus was as real to me as the fairy tale stories of Santa Claus or the Easter bunny or the tooth fairy or any of these things. There's no real anything. And so my understanding of who God was was very limited. In fact, I didn't believe in him at all. But do you think that stopped God from trying to reach out to me and save me? It didn't. And so God came to me and he, he reached out. He spoke to me in a way that I would understand. I became a Christian in my 20s. You guys know the story, whatever. And all of a sudden my theology changed. The God who was not real became real to me. That's what I mean. So when God shows something to you, your theology changes about him. Don't be scared of this stuff. It's okay. And I was wrong about who God was. I was wrong thinking that it was cruel for him to send his son Jesus to die. I thought he was just a mean God. Until I realized that Jesus didn't get sent to die on a suicide mission. Jesus, in fact, chose to die for us. And all of a sudden, Jesus is no longer this innocent victim, but a Lord and Savior worth worshiping now. See, my theology began to change. When I began to understand who God was and what his son Jesus did for me, all of a sudden, my mind expands into this. And Jesus is more to me now than he was then. I was wrong about my life being good enough. I was wrong thinking that I was strong enough to overcome some of the serious sin issues in my life. Many of you probably have experienced that in your life, that you do very well overcoming some things for a season in your life. You do what I used to do. I white knuckle it. 
I bear down, I discipline, I strive, I set accountability partners, right? The whole deal, all the Christian stuff, right? But at some point, I become too weak to continue. I was wrong in thinking I could overcome some of these things on my own. And then I understood why Jesus came. That he would go to a cross on my behalf, that he would bear the punishment for sin, because that is what the Bible is so clear to teach us, is that sin requires death. Not to go too deep because of time constraints, but just to understand this, that, be, that God in his perfectness and his holiness, that he cannot be around sinful things. And there's this separation. And so it is a desperate God who wants us to be sinless so he could be with us again. And Jesus does this miraculous thing by dying in our place on the cross. He was wrong about the cross too. <laughs> I thought it was just a torture device used by the Romans to crucify criminals. And I see that it was a device used by God himself to save the world. You ever consider how strange it is to wear a cross around your neck? I mean, if you have one on, don't feel like some way about it. But I just remind you, it's like having an electric chair hanging around your neck. It's a torture device. Right? It was horrendous how they murdered people on these things. And yet, and yet, God has changed our perception of that by his son, Jesus. And so now we look at it not as a sign of, uh, now we don't look at it with disgust, but we look at it and rejoice over it. See, I was wrong in so many things, and God has come and just changed my thinking. The question then remains, what are you going to do when God reveals something that you've been wrong about? Are you too self-focused and arrogant to even consider changing your opinion about him? I want us to take communion tonight. So once a month we'll serve communion here, which just simply means this, that we're going to take a, a cracker and some juice and we're going to remember Jesus' sacrifice for us. So if uh, the communion team could come forward, that would be great. here's what I want to see happen next. I'm going to ask them to serve all of us. Could you remember me? Would you give me something right now? I'm going to ask them to serve all of us. And then I'm going to step down. The band's going to come back and they're going to lead us in a song. And, and at any point during the song, you're, you're welcome to take the, the cracker. Go ahead, sir. Go ahead and serve guys. You're welcome to take the cracker and the juice and I'll discuss what they mean in just a minute, okay? So just grab a cracker and a juice, hold on to it, and then the band comes back, you guys can take the, the elements together. Jesus is having a meal. This is the story of what's taking place now. Jesus is having a meal with some of his friends. We call them the disciples. And it's just before he's to be crucified. And in the middle of this meal, this celebration of sorts, Matthew 26 records what Jesus says. 
He says, as they were eating, Jesus takes a loaf of bread and he blesses it and then he breaks it and gives it to his friends. Now, this is not uncommon. This is what they did at the dinner table. They would take bread and break it and pass it down the road. So what Jesus does is to change their thinking of what this bread is going to represent from that day forward. He says, this bread that's broken before you is a picture of my body that will be broken for you. I want you to imagine what it was like for the disciples the next, the next dinner, the next Passover, the next celebration feast when, when, I don't know, James reached out to grab the bread and broke it. If they didn't immediately rush back in their mind and remember what Jesus was saying about this. Jesus is saying the bread symbolizes my body that I'm willing to break on your behalf so that you don't have to endure the punishment for your sins. I will do that for you. So Jesus is going to liberate us from the punishment that is due us as sinners. And then he takes a cup. Says so he takes this cup and he blesses it. And he gave thanks, it says, and he gives it to them saying, drink, drink this cup, all of you, drink it. And he says, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. Look at this, for the forgiveness of sins. I was wrong thinking that I could work hard enough to find myself in a place where God would be with me always. I was wrong in thinking that if I just did right, if I just said the right words, if I just went home at a decent hour instead of staying out late, if I just stopped lying, if I just started doing all things, I would somehow find my way to where God was. And I've learned that I was wrong in that. The forgiveness of sins, the, play, the way that I find myself in the place where God is always and forever is through what Jesus does for me. Not what I do. The danger when we become so self-focused, right? We exalt ourselves more. All it does is it pushes, pushes Jesus down. And I want to be a people who, who always humble ourselves and always strive to exalt Jesus, always strive to lift him up. There's a psalm in the Old Testament, Psalm 115. The people of Israel are in dire straits, enemies all around them, all kinds of things happening. And they, they ask God, the God of Israel, to save them. And then they say these unique words. It's actually a poem. I think they sing it. They say, not to us, O God, not to us, but, but for your glory, but for your name, that the world would see you for who you truly are. Like, save us, not for us, God, but save us for you because we're your people. Moses had a similar conversation with God when in the desert, if you know the story of Moses leading God's people in the desert, there was a moment or two when God got real frustrated with God's people. Can you imagine if you were God? I remember one time um, God calls them stiff-necked. <laughs> That's a cuss word in Hebrew, I'm just saying <laughs> He calls them stiff-necked people, and he says, I'm going to kill them all. I bring them out of slavery in Egypt to lead them into the promised land, and this is how they thank me is the impression I'm getting. And Moses pleads with the Lord, and he says, God, don't kill them. 
And you know why? It wasn't for them. It was for him. Because he says this, he says, if you kill them, then the nations around you will think you're impotent. The nations around you won't think that you're strong enough to do what you said you would do. Moses understood. It is God's glory that should reign supreme. David, the psalmist, knew this. Not for us, O God, but for your name be the glory. All of these things exist. It's not for you. I love you. I think you're swell. I think you're great. I'm telling you, you cannot be the greatest thing in your life. It has to be someone else. It has to be Jesus. Thank you. So, so what are you going to do with that information? For me, it looks like doing what Jesus said. Take the bread, take the juice, and remember what I've done for you. It's a loving push. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, okay. It's, um, it's the Lord lovingly pushing us back in our lane. Excuse us, passing on the left, he would say. Excuse us, coming through, coming through. It's just his love. Get out of my lane. This is, this is what I do, okay? You, you don't do this. I do the forgiving of sins. I do the, all the thing. You accept it, okay? So um, maybe that's what we should focus on tonight. So I wanna pray. The curtain's gonna open. The band's gonna lead us. And in the next few moments, you're welcome to take the cracker and to bite it and to remember Jesus' body broken. And you're welcome to take the juice and drink that and remember Jesus' blood spilt for you for the forgiveness of sins. You are free from trying to save yourself. Amen? Ah, I love it. All right, so um, one more task. If you could get my table for me. I need more hands. Let's pray. God, thank you so very much. God, we love you. We thank you for being a God who corrects us in love you're for us and not against us. We know that. But God, may everything we do bring you glory. We love you. We thank you. Again, God, thank you for bringing us to be a part of a church who really loves to exalt Jesus more than anyone else. <laughs> yes, Lord. Thank you, God. Thank you for the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. Thank you for willingness, Jesus, to do the will of the Father, to remedy that great issue of sin in our life. God, may we remember you tonight in your work, and may we remember you always. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless. We hope this message was an encouragement to you. Walking in faith can be difficult, but we are constantly working to remind people of the truth and love of Jesus, and we want you to be a part of that. So head over to our social media pages on Facebook and Instagram, or connect with us online at renaissancedecatur.org and help us make a difference in the heart of our city.